The world is swirling around the toilet bowl of life at the moment, and just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, 42 to Doomsday is back. That's right, millennial Doctor Who fans, with your hashtag empty lives and your chai lattes and those goddamn vegan designer beards. We are back, putting the woke into your personal nightmares to give you our full and unvarnished view of our favourite program. You know you can't look away because we are your future. And the best thing of all, kiddies, is that we're still free. right people as uh, rob uh, tirated at the beginning of the episode despite saying many many moons ago we never come back we are back how are you rob well mark uh, in actual fact we may have to start panhandling for patreon money <laughs> given the uh, given the situation the technical situation we face tonight apologies yes. uh, from my end uh, of uh, skype has updated itself for the very last time <laughs> on my uh, pc and or laptop so I'm uh, having to uh, have stolen my daughter's uh, iPad, and we're currently using uh, iPads to record uh, our end of uh, the conversation. So if I sound a little bit droppy outy, I'll just take $5 a month from your favourite bank account. No, it'll never happen, will it, Mark? Not while your machine is still running uh, Windows 2000 and shit. So. <laughs> I'm relying on my daughter to uh, graduate to the next year level and be able to uh, purchase a, a, a Macintosh, an Apple Mac. So we'll be, uh, I'll be working off that uh, in the near future. Why are we back? Well, Mark, why are we back? No, I'll tell you why we're back. Because, let's be honest, I think we missed it. Well, I missed it a little bit. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we went off to uh, Dave Kitchen's house uh, to record a uh, podcast, A Decision for the Doctor Who Show. Which and went out to great acclaim. It did, actually. And it was a lot of fun to do. I sort of said, you know what, I really enjoyed that. And uh, it sort of uh, dovetailed nicely into my uh, binge-watching, I suppose, a lot of the uh, Classic Who DVDs. I've sort of... Uh, I had them sort of gathering on on the shelf, and and luckily I had because uh, their price had increased dramatically. So <laughs> I was quite happy with that. I, I sort of cracked them open over a, a few months ago, and just been sort of working my way through them quite fast. And uh, it sort of reignited my uh, passion for the show, mainly about the classic series. I still haven't touched the new stuff, so. Uh, that's why I think we're back, and we've also got a main topic that uh, you can talk about later, which I've sort of been badgering you and Dave to record for a while, so it's all sort of dovetailed quite nicely, I think. Yeah, you have been saying that uh, your love of the show has also been rekindled by the Blu-rays, going through the Blu-rays, is that right? That's correct, yes. I just finished up the Season 10 set the other day. I'm just about to crack open the Season 19 set, but uh, yeah, I've just sort of been working my way through every story, and it's because you're watching them all, and you're reappraising them, you're getting new things out of them, so... Um, um, evaluations have changed on some and, and some have gone up and some have gone down but uh, there's always new things to, to be found in them. Well I was just going to ask, just as a matter of practicality, uh, 45 year old Doctor Who suited to the Blu-ray format or are you mainly getting it for the voluminous extras that have been packed into each set? In terms of a restoration, they are looking very very good for a 45 year old program uh, where they've got original film elements for mainly for the Davison stuff and occasionally they'll drop in if they've got for the Perwee. It looks, you know, sensational. They've done a great job in terms of what they've uh, been able to do with the, uh, with, with the quality of the, of the episodes. I mean, they're probably better than what looked when they went out originally. And the extras are really, really good. I mean, most of them have been ported over from the DVD sets. However, 
there are new extras there, new makings of. There's plenty of stuff there to keep you uh, occupied. And uh, it's just been a day or two since they launched the uh, the announcement of the uh, Season 26 Blu-ray set with a short little film featuring uh, Sophie Aldred. Um, well, I certainly watched it with a, with a rising sense of excitement. And I immediately tweeted that this is better than anything that was uh, was screened in the last <laughs> series, <laughs> which, which is a tad unfair. It is a mixture of nostalgia, and uh, it's it's great to see uh, Sophie. I'm not quite sure who who the who the short man was holding the uh, the umbrella <laughs> on the other side of the door, but I don't think it was Sil- Sylvester McCoy. But regardless, no. it was a, it no. was a, I think it was Peter McTighe or McTighe who uh, who directed that. I think you uh, wrote it and directed it, yeah. And it might yeah. have been Tattoo with the uh, from Fantasy Island uh, <laughs> with, with the umbrella by the door, knocking it down. But yeah, it was great, wasn't it? But it, it was, was very well yeah. done, and it, it yeah. very well done. And got a lot of people excited, which is great, which is the idea, isn't it? Like even when the Trial of a Time Lord trailer came out, people are getting excited about that. I mean, who would think thirty odd years later, people get excited about the, the Blu-ray box set of Trial of a Time Lord? I mean, as I said, it's getting more excitement, I think, on Twitter than um, the last series on the season ten box. It had one uh, one extra call, keeping up with the Joneses, which was uh, Katie Manning and Stuart Bevan visiting the sites in uh, South Wales where the where the Green Death was filmed, and that was that. Was was fantastic that was really well done as well i think it's interesting that the rapturous applause and the appreciation that these trailers are getting are indica- indicative of you know that the, the the rancor that went through fandom you know during colin baker's time and and the rage against sylvester mccoy that sort of lingered into the 90s i remember uh, on records doctor who that sylvester mccoy was just punching bag for a large number of fans all that appears to have just dropped away look it, it may be the infusion of love and and and, and hugs and kisses and uh, and whatever from new series fans uh, into the uh, the overall fan zeitgeist, but there's more uh, there's more love and appreciation for that for for the older classic era stuff, um, and I think it uh, I, I think the reception that these sort of trailers are getting and the and people diving back into these stories is is just a wonderful thing. And uh, you know I, I have my issues with the new series and I have my issues with some of the new the attitude of the new series fans, but you cannot deny their enthusiasm and love for the show. And if it bleeds backwards. Uh, you know, into the classic series. Uh, well, that's great. That, that that that's just fantastic. Were there many many from the new series fans in terms of the trailer, the Ace trailer? Was it? Look, it's hard to say who is uh, applauding it yeah. in terms of you know the age demographic and all that sort of thing. But I mean, look, if you'd uh, if you'd landed in a discussion about the pros and cons of the Sylvester McCoy era in the mid '90s online, um, you know, it was it was one acid attack after another, literally almost, well, literally. Uh, but now you don't, you you just don't get that, and uh, I think it's a function of time, and I think it, it may be that they're just people who put down their their weapons and sort of just decided to embrace Doctor Who for, for what it is and and look life is too short as we're we're, we're rapidly finding uh, within you know the release of 30 year old material 40 year old material it's life's too too short to just you know take up arms and start stabbing people in the faces just enjoy it for what it is look i think that the the love of the mccoy era definitely will radiate with season 26 i am slightly concerned cuz season 24 is going to come out at some point and there's only so much cgi work they can do <laughs> they can't CGI the script so look the stealth is obviously a very powerful thing uh, obviously the sets are selling extremely well I think a lot of it's classic fans buying it maybe some new series fans as well but also a lot of scalpers buying it as well and selling them off for obscene prices that's it, exactly yeah, when there's money Doctor Who is still I think the classic series is propping up the new series to be honest so um, and as I uh, concluded watching season 10 very sad news that uh, Uncle Terence Dix had uh, passed away I saw the news on uh, on the evening that it was sort of announced or it filtered through to Australia here. Uh, look, at 84, uh, it's no surprise um, that uh, that he's passed away. Hmm. Uh, I mean, the, the, everything, that sort of thing is inevitable, as we all know. 
Terence Dix represents a massive chunk of the show's history going back to the late 60s and stretching right into the mid-80s and then beyond it, especially with his writing with, you know, the new and missing adventures for Virgin. We all know that uh, he, he wrote many, many books for, for, for children. And uh, you, you'd go into any library in the in the 70s and 80s and the, the D section would be <laughs> would be padded right out with all, all his work. And him passing away, it, it's, it's similar to, you know, a lead actor dying like John Pertwee or, you know, um, whenever... You know, Tom Tom Baker oh, passes away because yeah, I don't yeah. say it. I, I know, I know. But you know, you know the sort of sensation that you'd get because I mean, yeah. he was a massive part of a lot of people's lives in in terms of what was on television, and mm. not only just Doctor Who, but also books, and not necessarily just the target novelization. So, the mm. outpouring of love, and it was it was there was there was a little bit of grief, of course, you know, because he's a part of a lot of people's lives. But the, I think the overwhelming sensation I got from looking at this online was. A love for, for for a quiet and an unassuming man who was proud of his work, um, and, and and impacted you know positively on the lives of not thousands but tens of thousands and even maybe hundreds of thousands of people uh, you know in terms of fans uh, over the years. So it, it is sad that he's gone. But as with any writer, as with any some any person who creates something, whether you're an artist or a sculptor or you know you dance or you act or or something like that, the work that you leave behind. Is your is is your monument? Is 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 the is the is, the is your life in a sense? And exactly, mm. legacy. By Terence Dix passing away is no surprise, but we can sit back and, and value and and marvel at the sheer level of output that he, he managed over over fifteen or twenty years, or even twenty five years association with the show. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, he was a man who made sure that you know season six. Let's be honest, is variable in quality, but he got something out every week, and it wasn't the test card, as he famously said. Exactly. And then you had five solid years on the Pertwee era. When I was watching season 10, and I thought every story stood out and the scripting was tight. Yes, I mean, there's six episodes here and there. There's a bit of padding, yes and yes. But in terms of that, the structure of stories, it was tight. And even when you left the series, I mean, one of your favourite stories, Horror Fang Rock. You know, yes. he did that. Five Doctors, State of Decay. Look, it goes on. And of course, the novelisation, they've played a, a huge part in everybody's life. Reading those Target books infused my love of reading. They were perfect for me. It was simple. They were quick to read. None of them seemed like a chore. For him, yes, his legacy on the show is monumental, but on a personal level, I can't get the words out, to be honest. And I think my biggest regret really now is... I should have gone to see him at Lords of Time, <laughs> you know, a couple a of years ago. ago. Yeah, yeah I, know, I know David, Dave did, and, and he enthused about meeting him. And, and on a really, in, in retrospect now, um, I really wish I, I went just to say thank you, really. Just like me not seeing Queen in 85 when I toured here. That's another one I didn't do. Yes. No, I, I, look, I agree with everything you, you, you say, um, Mark, about uh, his impact and and the quality of his writing. I mean, he, he wasn't a, you wouldn't call him a, a prose stylist or anything like that, but he, he had a really good sense of story and character and pace. I mean, look, I, I go on and on and on about horror of Fang Rock, but I think you could pick out any of his stories like State of Decay. I mean, he, 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 he crafts an interesting story filled with, with characters who, who serve the plot really well but but are also characters in of themselves. I mean, the, you know, going back to horror of Fang Rock, there's you know the the the, the lighthouse keeper, the lighthouse keepers, and then the people from the boats. I mean, they they have their roles aren't you know entirely throughout the episode, but you can you can picture them in your mind's eye and, and realize that you know through his writing, through the words he's put in their mouths, these are individual characters who aren't bland or anything like that. They've got something to offer throughout the story. They just add to the sense of atmosphere and and and, and tension that, uh, that that predominates through uh, through horror of Fang Rock. And the five doctors uh, keep going on. That's a perfect celebration story for me. 
And mm. I think he treated everybody in, in that story with respect. I sort of look back why I had such a problem with Twice Upon a Time was I just didn't think that Moffat treated that first Doctor from a writing perspective, definitely. And it's probably me just being a little bit, I suppose, territorial as well on it. But I just didn't think he treated that character with respect as, a, as opposed to what Terence did when he did the Five Doctors. This is the different writing approaches, uh, you know, the different writers take, I suppose. With a Moffat script, it's, it's almost as if Moffat is standing at your shoulder, reading along with the words that he's put in, in people's mouths. It's, it's very much Stephen Moffat on display, on the page, on the screen. And with Terence Dix, yes, he's the writer. He, there's enough distance there in his writing that he's concentrating on the story, he's concentrating on the characters. Uh, that you, 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 you sort of, you're not aware of who the writer is. You, all you're doing is just being entertained, being, mm. uh, you know, drawn into the to, to, to the story, drawn into the atmosphere, you know, what is the mystery, what is going on? And then suddenly it's the end of the story and you sort of, you're marvelling at the story itself and you're not, uh, you're not unlike a Moffat script, either, you know, railing against the, the clever cleverness of it or, uh, or, or anything like that. So, um, I mean, different writers have different approaches. It's just that some voices are louder than others. Mm. It's very sad. Another giant gone, and unfortunately, we're going to lose more. Look, you know, the 99% of the people who were lamenting his passing would never have met Terence Dix, but I think it's a measure of the man, the, the, the fact that he's, he's one of the, the titans of the show, that uh, he looms so large um, in, in, the, in, the, in the memory of people, even if they've never met him. I mean, there are thousands of you know, fans who came to Doctor Who stories, not through the TV series, but through his writing. Mm. I mean, there's you know, a, lot, a lot of the earlier stuff that he did, the Hartnells and the, and the Pertways, I, w- I would never have seen. So you, you sort of get that, uh, get that impression of the show through his prose and not the episodes itself. And I think, look, at the end of the day, it's the words that he wrote and the characters that he created and the stories that he uh, influenced that'll be his lasting testament, really. And the great thing about Terence was when he had an opinion... He said it. <laughs> I just remember listening to the Sea Devils commentary and it had uh, Barry Letts, Terence Dix, and Andrew Cartmel was uh, moderating. Both Barry Letts and Terence Dix were making comments on how these are the stories, you know, when we did them, they were tight, they were structured. Unlike the show towards the end where the scripts are all over the place, you know, and, oh, <laughs> I don't think they realised Andrew Cartmel was maybe the script editor. But, but like the scripts weren't making sense towards the end of the show. It's all running all over the shop. Bowie, you know, Bowie, him. they don't make Bowie. sense. Bless him. Imagine being Andrew Cartmel in that room, just going, "Oh my god, it's uh, yeah, very sad, very sad." Very but, sad. Uh, but thank you, Uncle Terence, for everything. Yes. Um, Dial Terence sticks. Speaking of books, Rob, uh, while we've been off the air, you've had a book or two published, haven't you? I certainly have, Mark, and thank you for for reminding everyone. Uh, Yes, I... uh... As uh, some may know, you know what, Mark? I've never actually said my surname on this on the on the podcast, have I? No, I've never mentioned my surname, so uh, it, it seems a bit strange no. to be saying that I had a book released. Uh, Candy Jar, <laughs> the small press publishers. Well, actually, not, I don't think they're small press as such. They're a smaller uh, publisher in the UK, Candy Jar. Yeah, they've got the uh, Lethbridge Stewart range. They have the rights to um, the characters, uh, setting, and the monsters that appeared in the Abominable Snowmen and uh, the Web of Fear. And so, about well, five or six years ago, the range editor Andy Franken. Mellon, in conjunction with uh, Candy Jack, came up with uh, this range. So they, you know, it's it's uh, it's the Brigadier, 
and uh, and a variety of other characters and, and, and creatures that appeared from those two serials and 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 also creating their own stuff. So anyway, uh, yeah, I um, because I've written for Candy Jar in the past, uh, written a couple of short stories and Travers and Wells novella. Um, uh, Andy asked me to uh, write uh, a book in their Laughing Gnome series, and uh, that book was uh, Rise of the Dominator. Uh, I think you can guess. Uh, what the uh, what the alien race they feature is? Quarks. Yeah, that was a, a lot. Of, uh, yeah, quacks, mate. Definitely quacks. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was a lot of hard work. Um, it's always been a dream of mine to actually have a book published, for, you know, for many many years. And uh, chronically lazy and uh, and procrastinating that I am, it's finally happened in my maturing of, uh, years, early middle age, maturing years. But yeah, a lot of hard work and a lot of late nights because uh, I work full time, of course. Uh, a lot of lunches sitting at my desk pounding away at the keyboard. But uh, look, it's come to fruition. Uh, you can go to the Candy Jar website. That's the best way to get most of or all of the money back to them. Otherwise, of course, you can go to uh, Amazon or the Book Depository. There's a Kindle version. Just before it was released, in terms of pre-orders, it was number one or two uh, in Doctor Who publications, uh, followed by a revelation of the Daleks and resurrection of the Daleks. So for a couple of hours there, thanks to the Amazon algorithms, it was uh, higher on the pre-order but you know that's obviously not not the case today. But look, I'm really proud of it, and uh, it's uh, it's a fun, uh, I think, exciting, dramatic adventure in the early '70s in Britain, featuring, of course, the Brigadier, an alien race will go unmentioned at this time. My favourite Nazi tropes, of course, and there's a bit of the occult. So yeah, oh look, I really enjoyed it, and I hope those people who've actually picked it up and read it have enjoyed it. Um, it's gotten some good reviews on uh, Goodreads, and uh, if anyone's interested, uh, yeah, just a Rise of the Dominator. Uh, candy jar books because in melbourne there are two signed copies in existence very rare rare as hen's teeth in actual fact if you're in australia you can uh, and if you're wanting me to sign a copy of a book that you've purchased i'm happy for you to mail your copy to me you take care of the postage at your end i'll sign it for you whatever you want and then i'm happy to mail it back at my uh, 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 at my cost uh, back to you only if you're in australia uh, get in touch with us at 42 to doomsday at gmail.com or you may even want to direct messages uh, at the Twitter account uh, at 42 to Doomsday. Happy to sign your books. Or even better, we can just go to that Thai restaurant near uh, in Northcote, have a table there, and you can just have people <laughs> coming and filing in. And we'll be eating our uh, spring rolls and getting soy sauce all over them. So let's do that instead. I'm glad actually your uh, pre-order was bidding Eric Saywood's uh, Resurrection of the Daleks because I'm reading that at the moment and that is bizarre what he's done to that. No it good. Is, it's early days. I'm just sort of getting into it, but it's very, yes. Yeah, done a okay. lot of expansion on it, but I don't think it's actually helping a lot. So oh dear. Um, I'm hoping it will get better. <laughs> but unlike the TV series, what I thought was fantastic, and now I just go, hmm. Uh, yeah, but uh, while there's life, there's hope. Well, we'll talk about uh, the future of the podcast at the on the other end of our uh, middle segment, won't we, Mark? And uh, having actually referenced it, we might as well just uh, introduce it. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, the, the fact that it hasn't happened earlier is all my fault. Uh, I've been teeing up for a while with David Kitchen of uh, the Doctor Who Show, of course, podcast, uh, and Spaceful, the Black Seven podcast, uh, talking about the depiction of uh, a religion in, in Doctor Who from uh, its inception uh, up to date. And so uh, I got together with Dave ooh, maybe two or three weeks ago. I think we actually dated to when uh, the 100th anniversary of John Pertwee's birth uh, so it was a few a few weeks ago now, uh, and when we sat down for about just over an hour and had a chat about the show, uh, I, I found it a really interesting and fascinating discussion. There's a lot of angles that we uh, you can come at in terms of uh, how religion is uh, depicted in the show. Uh, there's some sort of uh, there's some uh, 
sort of side notes there, but there's also some deep uh, deep cuts that we go into. So on the other side of this, Mark, we'll uh, we'll, we'll catch up again and just uh, sign off. But this is uh, Dave and I's discussion about Doctor Who and religion. So take it away, Rob and Dave. And welcome to another episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. And welcome back, Dave. Now, uh, I think the last time we had you on, we were talking uh, about politics. Certainly the last time I was on Solo, yes, we did our Doctor Who and politics conversation and got some really nice feedback from Yes, that, no, I think uh, even though politics can be controversial, especially in this particular era, um, I think it's always worthwhile to look at these sort of... Uh, these particular topics. And uh, speaking of controversy, we're now going to be moving on to looking at Doctor Who and uh, how religion has been portrayed in Doctor Who. So, yeah, Rob, we're going to go through this in chronological order, as is the easy way to do many Doctor Who topics. But from the start, I think it's making the point that I think Doctor Who as a science fiction show, and in particular a British science fiction show, does approach religion in a very sceptical manner. It is sometimes more friendly to religion Sometimes it is very unfriendly to religion, and we'll be talking about some of those extremes as we go on. But there's always this sort of rationalist aspect to the conversation. Not necessarily atheistic, although it does come through sometimes, but it is very much science versus religion. So, for instance, if Doctor Who was made in, say, France or Italy, which are sort of have been heavily Catholic countries, would it have taken a, a more rationalist bent, do you think? Or is it because it's England, Anglicanism, uh, you know, the Enlightenment and all that sort of thing? I think that has to be part of it. I mean, those old yes Prime Minister jokes about the Church of England being a social group, not a religious organisation, yes. do, I think, play a part in that. And there's a very middle-class rationalist sort of approach to religion in mm. England that is very much about, well, okay, you can go to church on Sunday, but apart from that, you know, who really cares? No. Not that it isn't important for a lot of people, and I know mm. that a lot of our listeners as well, but I don't think religion has a dominant role in British society in the way that it does in other societies. Yes. Actually doing some research for this, and I came across a paper that someone had written um, in the early 60s that posited that prior to 1960, religion had been more heavily involved in British society, and then post-1960, for a variety of reasons which actually coincides with the show coming along, Yes, it, it began to fade away. And, I mean, as, as we know now, religion in the West particularly has fallen, you know, through a trapdoor. The you know, observance and, and attendance at, at, at church, a Christian's perspective, of course, has basically collapsed. Absolutely. I mean, education and the nature of education changes that. Attendance at church absolutely changes that. And I think as well, I mean, I'm not saying that Doctor Who remotely was sort of the vanguard or an influencer in this debate, but... I think it is very much a reflection of that debate and the fact that you can get these lovely science fiction stories in everybody's living room at half past five on a Saturday Mm -hmm. is a reflection of the changes in society. And as we go through, particularly when we get to the 70s, I think, you'll see a number of those societal debates in this area really being reflected in what the writers are putting into the show. So as uh, you mentioned before, we're going to be looking at this uh, in a chronological basis. And of course, the very first story is uh, An Unearthly Child. Uh, Look, some of the stories we're going to be looking at we'll be just very briefly touching on. Others we'll probably get into a bit more. But An Unearthly Child, we see uh, when the the Doctor and uh, his reluctant companions arrive in, uh, I suppose, 100,000 BC. Um, (laughs) There's, there's, you know, you've got primitive man, they have a primitive religion, which is essentially worshipping either fire or the sun, which they call orb. So from the very beginning, Doctor Who is happy to look at religion. Yeah, absolutely. And it's certainly, in this case, are they deliberately putting religion into the hands or the same group as primitive societies? 
or is that just a coincidence of the fact that this is a caveman society and they have a religion? You know, is there a deliberate slight at religion in this one, or is it just saying, well, this is, this is their religion and that's not a bad thing? Well, I suppose um, when they don't have science to explain, you know, the natural world around them, it, it is going to be, you know, superstitions or, you know, as we, we say today, religions that, that, that enable that. So it is interesting that the very first story, they, they were happy to fall back onto that particular trope. I, I also found in, in some of these stories as well, that religion becomes a proxy for political power, that you have people wielding religion as a means of gaining political power over others. I mean, we can see that much later in, say, for instance, the massacre, where it's, it's a combination of both. But... Um, the, the whole struggle, the inter, inter-tribal struggle about gaining fire, there's a political angle there that is all towards gaining control of the tribe. That's certainly very true. Although I think if we go further into season one, we get our really first big look at the way that the show's going to look at religion, and that is, of course, the Aztecs. Yes. Where the show is almost Barbara versus religion. Yes, exactly, yes. In this case, though, it's not a Christian religion, and in fact, the Aztec's religion is distinctly implied, or I think you'd actually say said to be, in Barbara's view at least, a lesser or a less valid religion than Christianity. Yes. And she kind of has that view that if only the Aztecs weren't doing all this sacrifice and all that sort of thing, then you know they, they would be respected more by the conquistadors, which mm. is incredibly naive. Yes, it is. But, but it's an interesting take. But where I think the cat is really belled in this one is in part two, there's actually a conversation between the high priest of knowledge and the high priest of sacrifice where they sit there and go, um, so dude, when's the next eclipse going to be? Oh, it's going to be at 5.30. Right, well, let's make sure we have our sacrifice at 5.25 mm. and let the audience see that um, the, the gods are doing what they should be doing. Like, yes. it, it is a deliberate and clearly shown conversation where they are faking their God's actions exactly. to appease the masses. It's religion as performance. Absolutely. And so that, that whole rain ceremony and all, all those sort of things as well, it's, it's really just, I think, really interesting to think this is 1964 by now. Yeah. And they're overtly saying this society's religion is fake. Now, they're not at this stage saying that Christianity is fake. No. But they are certainly putting the TARDIS crew on the anti-religion side. Look, it's brutally cynical, isn't it, when you have that sort of depiction. And then if you're the audience and if you're switched on enough to think, okay, here is a people, here is a culture, here are the people at the top of the pyramid, literally, (laughs) who, um, who see their religion as a form of control, and then you look at your own culture, your Western Christian culture, and you think, are the people at the top of the tree, do they think the same thing? Do the people in charge of the religion, are they as cynical and as clear-eyed as the, 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 these uh, individuals in the Aztec culture? I think that's right, Rob. And what's interesting there as well is we talked at the start about a lot of Doctor Who having science versus religion. Mm. And look, we'll get to somewhere like Megalos where that's done with a sledgehammer. Yes. But, but, but here, the high priest of knowledge, Ortlock, is the sympathetic character mm. who, who goes through a crisis of faith and he's shown to be an enlightened and intelligent man. The high priest of sacrifice is the baddie. Mm. He's the antagonist. He's the one that wants to get the TARDIS crew. And he's the one for whom having control of the religion also means control of the society. Yes. So there's a very... I was going to say very clear. It's not very clear. It's very subtle in this occasion. But the knowledge guy is the goody, mm. and the religion guy is the baddie. But they're still happy to carve people's hearts out of their chests. That's right. And and certainly until he meets Barbara, Ortlock is happy to go along with all this yeah. and have all the trappings of being the high priest in society. Well, exactly. I mean, and what would be the point of standing up and confessing your 
um, lack of faith to the masses because you would soon enough be dragged along and be a sacrifice yourself. Yes, that's right. Just pivoting off that, Dave, there is a scene in the in, in the story where Barbara intervenes in the sacrifice to stop it, and the sacrifice, the person who is you know destined to die, is so outraged that they um you know that their their fate has been thwarted that they effectively you know jump off the edge of the pyramid to to their death. Yes, they sacrifice themselves. Yes, which because... is it's it's a when you think I mean we're we're looking at it this from twenty nineteen. All right, and it, granted it is a story, but we're talking about a story where. Uh, a culture's faith is so embedded in it that people who are going to be killed are going to be sacrificed are you know are so embedded within that particular faith that any attempt to interfere with their destiny is met with outrage and and a suicide well i wasn't sure we were going to go this dark this quickly rob <laughs> but compare that to a suicide bomber who yeah. commits an, an an act of of, of sacrifice mm. and kills themselves on the promise of what's to come in the next life. Yep. I mean, we are in 2019, but are we actually that far away from the same concept? Uh, not in the mainstream, though. <laughs> no. We are at least not in the mainstream. So just for people who may not have seen the Aztecs or haven't seen it in a while, what is motivating Barbara? Is it outrage that at this particular piece of barbarism, or is it knowledge that there is a better way to observe your religion? Or Barbara expresses genuine respect and regard for many aspects of the Aztec society. She talks about their science, their aqueducts, uh, their building, all those sort of things. And I think what she feels is that this was all undermined by the practice of blood sacrifice. And if she could remove that from society, then the good will flourish. Mm. As I said, it's a very unenlightened 1960s version of the, <laughs> uh, the conquest of Central America. Yes. But it is, it is of its time, but I think that is the motivation. Interesting. I wonder if, um, if if Barbara had succeeded, would Aztec society have collapsed? I mean, if you take away the very tenets of their, their faith, all their other achievements there, if you take their religion away from them, what are you left with? I don't think that Cortez was going to be stopped regardless. No. All right, so um, moving from one uh, barbaric culture to another, um, we can look at, say, the Romans, my, my, my people. Um, <laughs> Look, Dave, you've made a note here. There's, there's a very um, brief mention of an early Christian, Tavius, um, who uh, helps out Barbara. Is there anything we can say about... I just think it's an interesting contrast because it is a moment... And I can remember the first time I saw the Romans at a Doctor Who Club of Victoria meeting in 1989 or something like that. And we watched a scratchy generation copy of the Romans. And none of us had seen it before and we all watched it. And there was this character, this sort of court official, who helped Barbara escape and was freeing the slaves and sort of had his own little sort of slave um, freedom train, yeah. you know, freedom passage he was sort of going. And it wasn't clear why he was doing this. And in the very last scene before they leave Rome, Tavius is seen watching Rome burn. Mm. And then he pulls out a, a crucifix, yes. a cross, and, and, he, and he's holding that. And so there is this unsaid implication that his Christian values mm. are saying that slavery is bad and he's just doing his little bit to free, free slaves and, and do his Christian Duty, and I can remember all of us in the audience sort of gasping, oh, like, like that was a really powerful image, yeah. and, it, and and so cleverly and subtly done. Mm. And I just think it is interesting that having just made the points we have, the Christian in that is very much shown as being the good guy, yeah. and Christian values as being the way ahead towards our modern values. It's interesting when you look at Rome. I mean, Rome is the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic is upheld, you know, lauded for its rules, its laws, its architecture, its culture. 
But like the Aztecs, it's built on a sea of slaves. It's built on a sea of brutality, isn't it? So the Romans, you, you, you could have had a story of the Romans that went a lot like the Aztecs, where you emphasised the bad side of, of, the, of the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire. Uh, yeah, absolutely, you could. Instead, they sort of do a, a lovely historical farce. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I'm glad they did, because it's a wonderful story. But It, it is. But, but yeah, in, in that, there is this sort of very lovely gesture that I, I also think I would struggle to imagine it being done today. Does that positive depiction of a Roman say anything about the production team's approach to the story, or is it just a lovely grace note that, that, that they sort of go out on? I think it's the latter. Yeah. Because it's not seeded in a big way through the story. I think it's mm. just... A, if you're depicting a period in history that is known for the Christians being fed to the lions, yeah. that's probably going to be in your mind as a writer. Yes. And so maybe, you know, that this is the early days of Christianity. So uh, maybe it's there. Maybe Dennis Spooner thought it was a very um, poignant moment as the writer. I don't know. Interesting. And then to go on to the flip side uh, from Christianity, if we sort of move ahead, zoom ahead to the crusade... Um, we do see an interaction between uh, the Christians on the one, one hand and Muslims on the other. So we've got a depiction here of Muslims in this story uh, during the Crusades where we have you know, Western kings and princes and soldiers going to the Middle East to liberate Jerusalem. What does this say about the show's look at religion from both sides of the fence? I think the first point you have to make is that the portrayal that we get in the Crusade of Salah ad-Din is incredibly sympathetic yes he is shown to be a wise and noble and just ruler of his people who simply has fundamental disagreements with the crusaders on the other side yes arguably saladin is more sympathetically portrayed than richard the lionheart is now both of them have got their henchmen and their villains mm. um elakia is very much the baddie of the story is he the baddie because he's a Muslim? I would say no. He's the baddie because he's the henchman that's yeah. doing all the, all the work in this in this war, mm. and and because Doctor Who is a drama and it needs to have a bad guy. Yes, uh, I don't think that he's a bad guy because he is Islamic. So there's actually a very incredible and healthy respect, I think, shown in this, which again is sort of from that very gentle, kind 1960s outlook. And I mean, look, I've I've been to Jerusalem, mm. and I've been to Jaffa, and I've been to the places where this was set, and it is certainly more respectful than a lot of the debates you would get around that area now, I would think. Yeah. It's interesting. The Crusade was aired in 65, and we're only a couple of years away from the Arab-Israeli war. The depiction that we see here of Muslims, is it a function of, historically, Saladin is, is, is regarded as being an enlightened ruler, or are we looking at a period before, you know, more Middle Eastern conflict that sort of informs this story? I think that when we did our Goodies Pirate podcast, Rob, which you were a big part of, mm. we talked about the depiction of the Arab cultures in that, and in that it was far less about them being Muslim as it was about them being oil shakes. Yes. And I think that's kind of where the zeitgeist was going at this point. Mm. And so therefore, um, Arabia and Persia, before oil shakedom, was simply just a, a an ancient culture in the way that the Egyptians were or the Romans were. Yes. Although there is... You know, always going to be a lot of controversy about what sort of a man Saladin and his people were. Mm. There is a very prominent school that says he was at least as wise and just a ruler and certainly educated as many of the Western rulers and, and, and probably 
significantly more so now. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. and the, the the scientific achievements of the Muslim Empire in that period are unquestionably very very mm. strong. Yes, exactly. Now moving forward, but even further back in time, and possibly to a mythical mythological age, there's the mythmakers, which we can very briefly touch on. That they worship, I suppose, you know, Greek gods effectively. Uh, is there anything we can say from the mythmakers in terms of religion? Uh, look, two quick points. One is that we do get the joy of having the Doctor mistaken for being Zeus yes. <laughs> for a while, which is, which is quite fun, and you know, all, all those wonderful lines. Sir, you killed this man. Yes, but in your name. Um, which, I, which I've always enjoyed. What's interesting, though, is that the high priestess, Cassandra, is kind of mocked for her prophecies and her nonsense by her family and, 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 and the people around court in Troy. But she's also shown to have been correct yes. in her prophecies of doom. And I don't think you can really read too much into that, mm. but it is just another example of a non-Christian religion being depicted in the show. Yes, Probably more a pessimist than actually someone who could see the future. So. I, I think that is the implication, yes, but uh, it is worth mentioning. Plus, I mean, any Doctor Who episode that has the title Small Prophet Quick Return <laughs> needs to be noted. Yes. So from going from a, a more comedy approach, we get into something uh, really heavy, which is the massacre, or as some people say, the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. Dave, the wars of religion in, the, in, in, in Europe in the 15 and 1600s. Wasn't that fun? Pretty full on. Right? <laughs> Whenever I hear some columnist talking about how Britain or Europe is uh, more divided now than it's ever been, you kind of want to just point them at the Wars of the Roses or the Wars of Religion or, or the English Civil War and sort of point out that we've 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 had a lot worse. And yes. I mean, this this was a pretty pretty bad time. I mean, the massacre of Saint Bartholomew's Eve is obviously a historical event. Yes, Elizabeth I's chief courtier, William Cecil described it as the greatest crime since the crucifixion. Yes. Um, which was a bit of international hyperbole, but but it was certainly a big deal, you know, around the courts of Europe. Spin doctors existed even then. So. Absolutely. This does portray real people, as in real historical characters, yes. and, and events with a reasonable amount of accuracy for hmm. a, a family sci-fi show. In it, we, again, because Doctor Who needs to have goodies and baddies, we kind of end up with the Huguenots being the goodies and the Catholics being the baddies. Now, I think it's debatable if that's a genuine choice and this is an anti-Catholic polemic, Mm. or is it simply that in an historical event where massacring happened, those who did the massacring are going to be less sympathetically referred to as those who were massacred. Well, yes, but it, I mean, if, if, if the events depicted in the massacre were the only religious pogrom that occurred in that time, that would be a, you know, a valid point. But I think overall, this was not the first time this happened. It wasn't the last time it happened. It wasn't the first time it was committed by Catholics and the Protestants themselves would commit similar massacres uh, later. Um, I mean, you could certainly look at some of the purges that, for example, Edward VI and James I did in, in Britain, yes. um, which was Protestant versus Catholic. And, and, and many other examples. So I I don't think this is meant to be an anti-Catholic polemic. No. I don't think it's actually meant to be an anti-religious polemic. I think it's simply this is an interesting and dramatic part of history. Mm-hmm. Let's portray it. And if out of that the viewer says, well, these guys were kind of the baddies, well, that's a judgment for the audience to make. And I think like a lot of historical Doctor Who, though, the intent of the writer is less about make your mind up now yeah. as it is go down to the library, look up the the, the wars of religion in France and mm. go and learn some more. Yes. For me, it harks back to my earlier point about how religion can be used as a proxy for political political power. I mean, we, 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 see, we see here depicted Catholics versus Protestants, but during the wars of religion, and again, go down to your local library and read this up, there's plenty of great, great books on it. 
it's more complicated than that. I mean, we had we had the French in rivalry against. So the French were Catholics. The Habsburgs in Spain and Austria were Catholics, but we had the French allying with the the the, the Dutch who were Protestants in a in a in a in a balance of power play to keep the Habsburgs down effectively. And you know, you 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 see you see that happen time and time again. You see uh, German princes of Protestant. Or Catholic persuasion, allying with you know ostensibly the religious enemies to take down someone else who's on their side. You're right, Robert. I mean, you talk about spin, the amount of money and resources and blood and treasure that England put into the Netherlands at that time was spun as being because they're our oppressed Protestant brothers. It had far more to do with keeping France out of there yes. and keeping Spain out of there than it had to do with anything else. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, look, it is an interesting period. It's it's a real pity the massacre has, has gone because I think along with the visual aspects of it, I th- having that would enable the story to have greater prominence and have a, a greater discussion amongst fans about what it's actually saying. Yeah, I think so too. I think the massacre is one that is well worth having a look at or at least to listen to if you can. And given all that, I love history. I did history at university. You love history. You did it, you did it as well. Yes. If we were talking to new series fans about these intra-religious wars that were going on 500 years ago, what would they say? How would you think a new series fan would look at this and go, would they understand the religion that's going on here, the religious conflict discussion, or would they just be completely puzzled and why are people killing themselves over how you choose to worship the same God? I think if it was done now, it would have to be done with a deliberate intent in the mind of the writer. In that, at the end of this, the writer wants the audience to get this message. Yeah. What that message would be would depend on the writer and the, and the context. But I, I don't think you could just portray this in a in inverted commas neutral way. Yeah. It would have to be through the eyes of we want to make this point. Mm. And that would involve a writer and a production team being willing to take sides, which yes. could bring its own controversy. Uh, yes, and and look, Demons of the Punjab probably is the closest to that we've had in the mm. new series, and. I think did it in a very respectful way, yeah. but it still took sides and still had a in inverted commas lesson mm. at the end of it. I think I think that's how it would have to be done now. Demons of the Punjab would be the, the template. All right, so we'll move on from that particularly bloody episode in human history. Uh, just a couple of um, stories that sort of feature religion, but not too heavily. We come across the underwater menace. We have Amdo as, a, as an idol that is worshipped, I suppose, or depicts a particular god, and we later on see the abominable snowman where there's, there's a talk of Buddhism. Is anything in these particular stories about how religion is, is shown? Very quickly, I think you can make the point that Amdo is shown to be a distinctly fake religion mm. in that they go to behind the idol and there's the setup where the priests can be the voice of Amdo and yeah. do all that sort of thing. So it, it is shown to be fake. I don't think it's a comment on Christianity in any way. Mm. And, and, and the monks are just another example of another religion being shown with incredible respect. And, and, yeah. and the Doctor certainly gives extreme respect and almost deference to the Tibetan monk's religion. The way he talks about the Ganta mm. as this symbol of their religion and, and, and a holy relic and the importance to him. He's he's not dismissive that this is just a bell of some you know church group yeah. in the mountains. This is this is taken very seriously. And the Abominable Stoneman is not about religion, but it is a very respectful depiction of uh, Buddhist faith. So why why would you why would you suggest is the reason for that particular depiction? I mean, we're we're into the mid to late sixties now, and I suppose ideas around Buddhism are more permeating throughout Western civilization, Western countries. Is it something that's bright and shiny, that's new, that we're willing to give a a shot and and not a shot, but you know we're happy to depict it in a sort of a neutral, a value neutral way? 
I think it's more a case of why wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, there's no reason not to. And if you're trying to portray the Doctor in 1930s Tibet, mm. why wouldn't you portray them as being nice and good and respectful people? And, and the Doctor is fundamentally a decent and nice and respectful yeah. character. True. I, I don't think it, at this point would have entered anybody's mind to do otherwise. And I suppose it is depicting, as you would if you go to an alien planet in the show and you're seeing a different culture, with this, you're showing your audience a different and equally valid culture that is alien to their understanding. Yes, very true. I mean, Tibet now feels remote. Tibet in mm. 1966 was just, <laughs> might as well have been the moon. The only time people would have thought about Tibet would have been with regards to Edmund Hillary 15 years before. Yeah, long, long time before the uh, industrialisation of the Everest climb. Yeah, oh, yes. Yes. Uh, we've seen that in recent months. A strange thing to do. Anyway, all right, so we now leap into the 1970s, don't we, Dave? With a story that I think you've said here, or and I, tend, I agree, more than anything, sort of looks at the difference between you know science and faith or religion, and the demons is the story we're talking about. It is the first scene that we have with the Doctor and Joe is very much portrayed as there is a scientific, rational reason for everything, yep. and all of this other spiritualism and all of this other stuff is is just nonsense. It's ridiculous. Joe, stop being silly. You know I can make the I can make Bessie move magically, but it's because I've got this cool control box here. Yes. There is a scientific reason for everything. Mm. And I think this is where we really start to move into the... I mean, we're in 72-1 now? That sounds right, I think, yeah. Yeah, we're the end of... Maybe early 72, late 71, 72, by the time season 8 finishes. This is really where I think Doctor Who is overtly saying, we are a show that believes in science, that believes in knowledge. We are pitching to those sort of audiences who are interested in this... And I don't think we're at the point in this where it says there is no place for faith, mm. but it is certainly, if not dismissive of faith, it is asking you to question. Yes. But Joe's act of self-sacrifice mm. actually beats the science and wins the day at the end. It does, doesn't it? It is, and the idea of a you know a companion seeing themselves as a, as a or being prepared to sacrifice themselves for the good of others. I'll make that point later in the Planet of Fire. But she does, doesn't she? She, she? she sort of... And she confuses the, the rational being... Yes. ...as to why is this creature sacrificing themselves? I can't understand it. I must blow myself up or, or vanish. Yeah, so it's almost having its cake and eating it too, in a way. And, and even the Doctor says at the end of it, well, I guess there is some magic in the world after all, Joe. Mm. And he's talking about that magic of May dancing and, and yeah. a lovely morning in summer in England in, yes. in a country village and all that sort of thing, which is a nice way of not undermining what they're doing, no. but certainly, I, I think, putting a rationalist outcome very much as being the doctor's view. Yeah. This is also the story where they blow up a church. Yes. <laughs> and that did cause some controversy, didn't it? Simply because of the, the sheer realism of the effect. Uh, yes, yes. But I, I have been to Allborn and it is, it is still there, I promise. <laughs> it's still intact. I suppose you can... Is it currently in use? I have no idea. I didn't stop for the sermon. <laughs> But you're right, it, it was controversial. The imagery of blowing up a church mm. on the BBC on a Saturday afternoon mm. w was controversial. Yes, I mean, you know, you, you, you tune into the BBC for authoritative news and, you, uh, and opinion and you're suddenly seeing religion blown up. It is, it, it is striking. Yeah, so I, I think that this is really an important stepping stone in this, this discussion. Mm. Doctor Who really does nail its colours to the mast here, but does so in a way that is very polite. And, and I should mention here as well, one that we didn't note down but has just come to mind is Colony in Space, mm -hmm. where, again, 
religion is shown to be a part of the descent into primitivism. And that there is actually a rational reason for all that has happened, and mm-hmm. the Doomsday Weapon and the the Guardian are not gods. It is just a machine and a, a an advanced race and all that sort of thing. But we'll probably talk more about that stuff as we get further into the seventies. Yes, I mean the the Doctor is prepared to push forward the rationalist view, but he's not doing so in a way that dismisses people's genuinely held views, is he? <sighs> not entirely. No, the Doctor kind of is, but the show isn't. Ah, okay. That's an important distinction. I think that is an important distinction. I think the Doctor would still say, and, and, you know, my headcanon has always been that Joe's act of self-sacrifice, given given that we're talking about the way the desire draws his power from the emotions around him, Joe's act of self-sacrifice is going to be amplified in the way that, et cetera, et cetera, and that's what causes it. You can find a headcanon scientific reason in there. Yeah. But, and I think the Doctor would, but the show is also saying, guys, you know, there's a place for this stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Unrational acts of self-sacrifice and faith and belief can win the day sometimes, and then they pop church. <laughs> Very much so. And I suppose it's worth touching on. Um, even though uh, *Chariot of the Gods* by Von Daniken was released in '68, it did um, introduce, I suppose, the world to the idea that faith, religion, gods giving a, a scientific basis for it. They are aliens who have come to Earth and, you know, primitive peoples have picked up on that and, and used that or turned that into a religion. So, you mean, you know, he talks about Stonehenge and the Naka Lions in Peru, the pyramids all being effectively created by aliens or influenced by aliens. Now, he's bonkers. It's all bonkers. Yes. But um, it is something that, again, it permeates the show. It does permeate the show. We'll talk about this a bit more as we get further into the 70s, but... At this point, we should mention Death to the Daleks. Yes. Where the Exelons are effectively, well, well basically said to be Danikin's aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, they helped to build temples in Peru and all that sort of thing. And now have descended. And, and again, religion has shown as being something that comes into a society as it reverts to primitivism. Yeah. And they now worship their city. Yes. And they give sacrifices to it. And we get all those rituals with the incense and the, the chanting and all, all the trappings of Christian Mm-hmm. Um, service, particularly Catholic service, needs to be said, yeah. and drove on your point earlier, Rob. But yes, the excellence have descended into primitivism, and therefore they are now worshipping a building. Mm-hmm. I suppose any primitive society needs to understand its 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 surroundings. So even you know even a primitive society like the excellence, which created what they now worship, they need that understanding. They need some way of of describing the world to themselves, and a, a story like Death of the Daleks demonstrates that. I think it does, given this is Terry Nation as well. I think he may be making a bit of a <laughs> a, a colonialist swipe at, at non-Christian primitive religions, mm-hmm. or in, in, sorry, in what he would see as being primitive religions. Yeah, um, I, I can't dismiss that. It could also just be because you know it's Doctor Who and sacrifice scenes are good cliffhangers. Yes, well, that's true. That's also. I mean, that, that 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 is that is a, a driving point. I think we're going to come back to in a number of cases that why have they made this decision? Because it's a good, exciting a yarn. At, yeah, in an episode. I think at the end of the day, um, that is that is clearly the motivating uh, factor in a lot of these stories. What is exciting? What will engage the audience? What will bring them back week after week after week? Yeah. <laughs> We now jump ahead again to, say, the planet of the spiders, which is very heavy in Buddhist parables, uh, imagery, iconography. 
And we see a character like Lupton who basically confesses that I gave my all to you know modern mainstream society for 25 years and they chewed me up and spat me out. I'm now looking for something and not looking for something in terms of just meaning for his life, but as a means of gaining power and dominance. Yes, you also get Mike Yates who has gone through some pretty difficult times and he's mm. betrayed units and he's now you know, out of the army and he's, he's looking for something in terms of faith. But you also get... And, and, and all of these people, as you say, find it in the Buddhist monastery. Mm-hmm. We also get spiritualism really respectfully depicted. And I'll actually put it to you, Rob, Planet of the Spiders is, I think, the most pro-faith, pro-spiritualism story we get in Doctor Who. Yes. It's not pro-Christian. No. The faith that we are actually doing this through is, is, is Buddhism. But many of the lessons that you would draw from religions, including Christianity... Mm are there having just watched Sarah Jane have a literal spider on her back Capo is now saying but what does this mean and he's saying Doctor you have one as well not a real spider but you have a figurative spider in that it's your greed Mm. and and that that is that is just the heart and soul of a a church sermon yeah exactly right exactly right and it's interesting that the Doctor's last line where he talks about while there's hope there's the emphasis on the word hope is I think hope itself is the very premise of all religion, isn't it? Yeah. That there is there there is the the hope of a reward to come after this particular life, and also the idea of redemption through sacrifice. Yeah. The the doctor has to admit that he has got this this deadly sin, this, mm. this greed for knowledge, and he needs to sacrifice something of himself. In the in this case, his thirty regeneration. Yeah. To to redeem himself and move past that, which is again a tenant. Of many faiths. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that we were just talking before about the demons where the, the doctor portrays a rationalist mind, but then we jump forward ahead and we see him willing, him being basically willing to say, well, there's a limit to that. The search for knowledge in and of itself isn't necessarily a good thing and that there's always a price to be paid for your greed or your obsession. And he pays it. And he's willing to pay it as well. I agree. I think that's a really good summary. And this is, look, it's a story that I'm very, very fond of. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should mention we're having this conversation on the 100th anniversary of John Pertwee's birth. Exactly. Um, and you know, Pertwee's a doctor I'm very, very fond of. And, and yes, I think that there is a wonderful discussion here. That It's not saying that faith is right and science is wrong. It's not suddenly reversing the equation we've had through the era, but it is making some quite nuanced and I think quite quite interesting points. As you said before, it's it's looking at a non-Western religion. It's not Christianity, but it's doing so in a respectful manner. It's giving time for people to make their point about what they're hoping to achieve. It, it, it is a respectful story in that regard, isn't it? Very, very much so. Yeah, yeah. And uh, your point about uh, Tibet uh, a couple of minutes ago, it's interesting that uh, the second doctor goes to Tibet, Campo regenerated and landed in Tibet. Yes. So uh, maybe he met uh, Campo then? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Look, we move into the Hinchcliffe years. There's not a lot that I actually want to mention here. I think partly because Hinchcliffe and Holmes weren't particularly interested in this topic and mm. they were very focused on how we scare the buggers to death. <laughs> you know, we, we, we get some religious trappings in Terence Dix's story, The Brain of Morbius. Uh-huh. But again, that's very, very uh, scientific. I mean, it's the same point we've made. But the, the, the sisterhood worships the sacred flame and this magic elixir and the doctor's like... No, it's just a chemical reaction. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's what we've been saying all along. I think we need to mention the Mask of Mandragora, which mm. is overtly a science versus religion thing, and religion is stated by the Doctor to be a thing that will hold back 
humanity yep. in that it retards the development of scientific knowledge. Exactly, yes. And whilst that could be taken as a very blunt comment, and it kind of is, he's not saying you need to do away with religion altogether, but he's saying that if religion, in this case the cult of Demnos, mm. is holding back scientific development, that is a problem for society. Yes. And religion needs to step aside. Yes, you, yes. You, you can do both. You can be a man of faith, but you can, and you can be a man of science. There are plenty of scientists out there who, you know, who, who profess a particular faith. Absolutely. But, you know, aren't willing to upend their, you know, their, uh, their, their field in, in, in maintaining their own religion. Yes. We then get to one of the most important stories in this discussion, and I will uh, refer to it by its original story title to <laughs> emphasise that, which is The Day God Went Mad. Yes. Otherwise known by us norms as uh, The Face of Evil. So, looking at your notes, Dave, you're, you're suggesting that this is a very strong science-based attack on faith, on religion. Oh, absolutely. I mean, any strip that goes under the working title The Day God Went Mad, yeah. clearly the writer has got some intent in doing that. And this is Chris Boucher. And this is Chris Boucher, yes. Great, great writer. The story is about a god who is not benevolent, who is actually playing and toying with his people. It shows sacred gestures are actually just the remnants of a memory of how to seal up a spacesuit. Yes. The litany is just a story told by... I mean, the, the high priest wears the hand of God on his hat. It's a space glove. <laughs> yes. You know, the, the, there is clearly comment being made there, and it turns out that God is actually just a crazy computer mm. that's gone mad. There is no God. Mm. They've invented it. Half of society that is the primitive one is the one that worships Zoanon as a God in the uh, spiritual sense. Yep. And the rationalist Tesh worship Zoanon, but as a computer. Mm. Th th this is clearly a very strong, very mid 70s rejection of faith and the trappings of faith and the tenets of faith. Boucher almost lists the trappings <laughs> of Christianity yeah. and says, How can I dismiss them all? Yeah. Okay, crossing yourself now, you know, I can do that. Um, the Archbishop's hat, right, I'll get rid of that. Like, yeah. It is done in that way. Fascinating and thoughtful. And, 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 and I would say somebody of faith could watch it and still enjoy the adventure. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not quite that heavy-handed, but this is a very... If the debate on science versus religion has been building over 14 seasons, this is the one that really comes in and gives the um, summary to the jury <laughs> for the argument for, for, for science. Is it very much an anomaly, though, the, the way that um, the production team was willing to go so far? I think... Yes, but I suspect not because they didn't have sympathy for what Boucher was writing, mm -hmm. but because they were generally more interested in monsters and robots. Yes, yes. And it is a story of striking images and imagery, isn't it? Absolutely. And I don't think that Hinchcliffe and Holmes would have made this if it was dull. Mm. They've sat there and gone, okay, well, what, what have we got? We've got a lovely alien jungle world. We've got this image of a, the giant face of the Doctor and you know, what a cliffhanger that's going to be. We get the scientific... Like, all the things you want in an adventure are there. Yeah. And so, therefore, they would have gone, well, okay, he's gone a bit out there on the anti-religion stuff, but that's cool. It's 1970-whatever. Um, and it's going to be a great, fun story. Who cares? Mm, exactly. We jump ahead again, this time to the Key to Time uh, series, where we have three stories that very briefly touch on religion, Ribos Operation, The Stones of Blood, and The Power of Kroll. Is it, is it just coincidence that we have this sort of religious aspects to some of these stories, or is it just a function of the stories? I think it is just a coincidence. Um, I mean, in, in the Robos operation, we, we get all the stuff about, again, their religion is just their way of explaining their society. 
Ice Gods and Sun Gods explains the elliptical orbit of the planet Rybos. Uh, but at the same time, and, and, and Binro is very clearly and unsubtly a Galileo allegory. Yeah. Um, and, and Binro is persecuted by the religious people. And it is again that comment that if, a, if religion has too strong a hold over society, it holds back scientific development. Mm-hmm. In the Stones of Blood, again, we get Césaire being the alien that becomes the god. Yeah. So it's that Von Daniken thing again. Uh, the Pair of Kroll is interesting because in this case, the Swampies are worshipping something that is not necessarily unworthy of worship. Mm. Kroll is a pretty amazing, powerful <laughs> sort of creature and, 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 and praying to him not to eat you is not an un- unvalid thing to do. Correct. Uh, but again, I just wanted to highlight the scene in part two where after the Swampies, and again, the Swampies are supposed to be a primitive society, therefore they sacrifice. Yep. That is a Doctor Who tenant. Um, that is, again, very colonial in its outlook, but it is what it is. After that has failed, the Doctor then has that scene about how well we have... The, clearly the Swampies had to fake the sacrifice of Romana to allow people to keep the faith. And there's even that bit where they've been spinning it afterwards where the uh, the Swampy speaks to the High Priest and says, oh, Romana escaped, but that's okay. We can say that Kroll took her. And the priest is like, yep, good spin, but make sure there's blood on the stone. Like mm. we need, This needs to be a convincing fake. And again, just that thing where Rankin's belief in Kroll is very sincere and very genuine, mm. to, to the point where he meets his fate sort of kowtowing to a limp tentacle coming out of a, <laughs> a pipe in part four, because yeah. that is his god. But he's also willing to like, well, no, we need to keep the illusion up, so... We need to fake the sacrifice, and we need to, to keep everyone believing. Is um, could you argue that some of these stories touch on the idea that faith can be a, a tool of control instead of merely a means of you know uh, looking forward to a better life? Oh, look, absolutely, and and I think the scene where the Doctor and Romana and Ron Dutt have been convicted, and it's not a case of the judge goes and sentences them, the high priest goes and consults with Kroll. Mm. You know, I've prayed to Kroll, and Kroll has decreed that you will get this verdict. Yeah. And it's very clearly the verdict that Rankin wants to get so he can maintain control of the Swampies. Yes. I don't know how much thought has gone into this, because Rankin does veer from being a manipulating, controlling religious figure to a genuine one. Yeah. And I think, again, Robert Holmes is just doing what the adventure means. <laughs> but but yes, you, you can see that in it. Okay. And the next story we've got on the list is Megalos. Wow. The, <laughs> well, uh, and the dodecahedron uh, plays a part in this particular story. Tell us uh, why you've picked this particular story, Dave. Well, look, this is one where it is so overtly science versus religion mm. that literally everyone in society grows up, decides if they want to be a scientist or a dodecahedron worshipping um, day on, mm. they then decide what wig they buy, <laughs> and and go and and go and join society. Yeah. Um, I'm not quite sure what Zaster is. Yeah. Um, you know, did he used to be one and he had to trade in his wig for a, a purple costume? I don't know. This is so badly done. Yeah. Like it, it actually undermines the arguments they're doing. The only reason it's not a total write off is because Jacqueline Hill mm. plays the high priestess with such sincerity mm-hmm. and such dignity. But otherwise, it is it is literally a, all the good people go and become scientists, and all the dumb people go and become <laughs> religious converts, and guess what? Their god isn't even a real god. It's a engine from an alien machine. Very unsubtle and not very... Um, so you're all fools, basically. 
Yes, in yes. bad weeks. Yeah. It is that idea that there is good and bad, there is no grey. There, there, I mean, there literally is no grey in this. It, it is literally, they're wearing black and they're wearing white. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough just to have a story that sort of talks about science versus religion. You've got to be able to do it well. You've got to have a clear through line or message. Yes, and I think you've got to have a genuine society as well. Mm, yeah. And in genuine societies, there are people of absolute faith. Mm. There are people of absolute atheistic belief. Mm. And there are people that are agnostic and there are people that are... Um, Sunday, you know, Sunday religious observers, yeah. and and there are people that are like, well, look, I, I, I consider myself a Catholic, but I think their views on same-sex marriage are outdated, and I'm going to be supportive of that. You know, yeah. there is actually a lot of nuance in a lot of people's faith. Exactly. to a pair of stories that in their essence really do hark back to the planet of the spiders and I'm talking about kinder and snake dance and probably more particularly kinder I suppose in terms of the use of Buddhist parallels and imagery and all that sort of thing. I find it interesting because kinder starts off very much rationalising this in that the Mara is a thing, it is an alien and all the symbology that goes with it is actually kind of explained away. It gets a little bit mystical in the whole it counts down its own reflection, therefore mm. a slightly dodgy circle of mirrors can, <laughs> can destroy it. But then it kind of does what I referred to earlier in Spanish of the Spiders as that, that, that Sunday sermon thing mm. of the Doctor learning the moral lesson out of it all and, and that concept of finding the inner peace. It's a very Quaker sort of um, yes. approach to religion as okay. well. Yeah. But yeah, suddenly you, you take all this scientific stuff and you have the alien and the monster out of which the Doctor learns a lesson. He mm. learns about finding the inner peace and, and the stillness and, and all that. But he still has to have a technical thing, you know, the crystal, to finish it all. Yeah. So it, it is using faith in the trappings of a Doctor Who story. It's also interesting that um, there is, in Kinder anyway, um, again, there's the Buddhist angles to it, but there's also a couple of uh, items of Christian imagery. Todd hands the Doctor or offers the Doctor an apple. Very, yes. Very, very clearly linking back uh, to the Adam and Eve story. And, of course, the Doctor's reference to paradise being perhaps too green for him as well, so a reference there to Eden. So I suppose they're aspects that, that are just worth noting. Now, we're going to move on to the next story, Dave, which is a particular favourite of yours, being the planet of the fire. Yes, my favourite Davison story. This is fascinating because there is a very clear conclusion reached by the story that is then almost undermined by itself. Mm-hmm. The Doctor arrives at San. They have a religion, and it is all about Logar, and Logar appears to you, Logar can rejuvenate you, etc., etc. We then discover that Logar is actually Turlo's people in Vulcanology suits. Mm-hmm. They have appeared to, to, to Timonoff. He, he did see Logar. It was a guy in a suit. Yeah. Uh, he did rejuvenate him. It was Numismaton gas, in the same way the Master's looking for it. So all of this culture's religion is explained away. And you also have depicted in the society heretics who do not believe in this and are excluded from a society and they're going to be sacrificed if they push the limits too far. We see Amian in his first scene is climbing up Logar's mountain to check that he's not there. Mm. And yep, no, it's just a volcano. At the end of the story, you get Amian as the heretic, as the unbeliever, walking in in Logar's suit. Mm. And Tim Ross, Logar, you're here! And Amiyan's like, no, dude, it's just me in a suit. It's been fake all along. You were wrong, I was right. And in a literal sense, Amiyan is right. Mm. Logar was fake. But Timonoff then turns around, he, he gets that line, 
Logar is everywhere and he cares for the faithful. And that even if the actual physical manifestation of Logar was fake, the meaning behind it, the spirituality behind Timonov's faith and the face of the priests is genuine and it is about something more than them that, that, that looks after and protects them. And Timonov absolutely gets to keep his dignity. Even though the story unquestionably comes down on the side of science, it allows religion to have a real dignity. And, and I think those words, you know, they, they, they care for the faithful, are words that I can he- imagine hearing from people of faith. Mm. That even though you can't rationalise it, there's more to it than that. Yes. And particularly, as I mentioned earlier in, in, in the episode, where um, faith, particularly in the West, seems to have in large part faded from people's lives there are those who are still of faith who live that life who are prepared to uphold that life even where they see a, a you know a rationalist society around them threatening to sweep them away they're prepared to live their lives prepared to live their faith uphold their faith witness their faith absolutely and i think this is a really strong and sympathetic depiction of that faith in its purest sense mm. i just want to make uh, one point on that in particular um we see that malachon is the is regarded as being the chosen one yes and turlow also bears the same symbol as his brother and is regarded as being the chosen one and it's it's interesting it spoke to me that turlow has been on the run from or in exile from his people doesn't really want to go home but puts himself in a position where he effectively radios home for help to come and save these colonists or these people and effectively sacrificing his freedom so that he can save these other people, and there's a uh, there's a cross-like imagery around that that uh, that I, I picked up on as well. So I think the Planet of Fire isn't merely simply you know an exciting adventure on Lanzarote, but it's also there are aspects to it that do speak to not just religion but faith in general. I mean, as you say, Timonov's religion is torn apart in front of his eyes, but he still has faith. He still has faith. You could get a Christian in front of a uh, an astrophysicist who would say, "Well, the Big Bang, you know, creation is this, and 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 your ideas about how God created the world is crazy." People will still have faith because it speaks to them. You you mentioned Turlow, and so I will bring up as well a point that you've been emphasising through the podcast, Rob, about that control. Turlow, once he realises that his prison brand is the sign of a chosen one, uses that to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. There's that scene where he goes up to Timonoff and says, "Oh, could you do this, this, and this?" and Timonoff's like, oh, I don't know about that. He's like, dude, I'm a chosen one. Yeah. And Timonoff's like, okay, no worries, chosen one, I'll go do it. And, 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 and again, Timonoff isn't actually trying to be hypocritical. Mm. He's still like, well, if this guy's a chosen one, well, Logar must know what he's doing. There can so. be more than one chosen one. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so let's jump ahead then. Uh, a couple of stories. Uh, the Mysterious Planet, uh, there's a, a mention of the Great Totem. And uh, in Silver Nemesis, uh, there's a theory going around that the Doctor is God. Uh, any thoughts on that, Dave? Uh, look, I think they're just sideways mentions. Again, this idea that a primitive society therefore creates religion around scientific things is, is, is there in the mysterious planet. It's, I think, Robert Holmes having a bit of fun mm. rather than a really sharp point. Silver Nemesis, you get Clark's theory that the Doctor's God who's made some mistakes and has to go around and solving it. I think John Nathan Turner was like, don't write that. <laughs> I, I, I don't care if that informs the story you're writing. That, mm. That's lovely. Have it as your headcanon. Don't put it on paper. No, no, and probably wise as well. <laughs> oh, very much so. And then um, before we jump into the new series, The Curse of Fenric, which uh, is very much looks at not necess- not just faith in religion, but just faith generally. 
faith in your friends, faith in your ideology, faith in particular symbols. Yeah, the Doctor's faith in his companions. Exactly. And Ace's faith in him up until a certain point. Yes, Captain Sauron's faith in the revolution. Yes, exactly. And and, and again, this is one of those ones where the, the, the novel goes in further in this. On the show, it's very simple. The, the, yeah. the, the commie has faith in communism. Mm. But in well, the if book, he didn't, he'd get a bullet in the head. Well, that's true. But in, in the book, it talks about life as a peasant under the Tsar, yeah. what his family went through, how he's now a captain in the Russian army because of the revolution. And in his mind, you know, this is a wonderful thing. Yes, we know with hindsight the millions that communism killed, and that's a point that should be made. Yes. But, but you, his faith in communism, his faith in the revolution is really explained and, and, and extremely understandable. Yeah. It's interesting that it's Father Wainwright whose faith is the one that breaks. Yes. Can we say anything about that? Or is it just... Well, again, it's understandable because mm. his, his explanation is one that I think many people of faith have wrestled with in that if God's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good, why does World War II happen? Why does he allow man to do these things? You know, can God exist in a... In, you know, Steve, Stephen Fry's comments about if God exists, explain childhood cancer. Yeah. You know... Th- and, and that's a very glib line on Fry's part. He's, he said himself that's a glib line, but mm. it is kind of the um, distillation of Wainwright's lack of faith mm-hmm. that no good, powerful God would allow this. Yeah. I suppose there's a counter to that. There's, uh, I was listening to something this morning that mentioned the, the American founding fathers and that a lot of them were deists insofar as that they didn't believe in God as such, but in a supreme being who created the world and then just said, it's up to you now. Yeah, uh, there, there is, a, there is, I suppose, a, an answer or an aspect of that as well. Oh, oh, there is absolutely an explanation, and and I think many theists and people of faith will balance those in the head. And people, people do. This is a genuine debate. I'm, I'm not saying that Rain White is right or wrong, yeah. but I totally understand the depiction of his lack of faith yeah. being 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 that rationale. And it's quite touching as well, I suppose, in the end. It is. In this case, though, I think that is, this is not about science versus faith. This is just about a good adventure. Yeah, a very good adventure. A very good adventure. Very good. And the chapters of it do really work dramatically as well mm. as, as people's faiths are tested and ultimately Ace's faith is tested. I mean, I mean, the, the denouement, the dramatic conclusion of The Curse of Fenric is the Doctor shattering Ace's faith. Mm. Which is interesting because as you mentioned before, Mike wanted to, wanted to talk about the Doctor being God going around fixing his mistakes. So in a sense, the Doctor is Ace's God in a way. Which is probably stretching it a little bit too far, but if you have, you know, you, you, I wouldn't imagine that Ace, the character, is a particularly religious person. She's looking for someone, but she's looking for someone to plant her faith in. And, and this is, I guess, an argument you hear from many people of faith. They say, "Well, okay, you may not believe in Christianity, but I guess I imagine you believe in something." We leave the classic series behind and we jump into the new series. And uh, now Russell T. Davis, the thing that he did before uh, Doctor Who was The Second Coming, um, which stars Christopher Eggleston as The Second Coming of Christ and The Search for the Third Testament and the ending, which I personally find, even though I've, I lack faith, personally ob- objectionable. Um, RTD is an avowed atheist, Dave. How do you think that um, impacted on his uh, work on the show? Bizarrely is the answer. <laughs> For somebody who is an atheist, he uses a number of pieces of Christian imagery. I can't decide whether it's just because, as a writer, he thinks that will resonate neatly with the audience. I can't decide whether it's a little bit of mocking. I, I, I generally don't know. He, he uses the well remarkably for somebody who doesn't believe in the well. Mm-hmm. 
even if he's not a man of faith himself, it, it, religion is part of the cultural background that we all sort of move through. Yes. So if you're going to, you know, write works of fiction, you're going to steal aspects of your culture to, to, to inform your writing. Yeah, so to, to jump around a little bit, for example, there is that famous image in Voyage of the Damned where angels lift the Doctor in a uh, crucifix position, yes. you know, up and with the hymn music. You're, you're right. Even if you're not a believer, you still know what the Christ image is and you know mm-hmm. what that, that crucifixion image is. You know what angels are. And so that is a very powerful and dramatic image. Whether RTD simply wants it to be that or whether he's actually kind of sending up that image, I don't know. Mm. And I mean, that's an argument that goes all the way back to um, that, that wonderful debate between Michael Palin and John Cleese and um, Malcolm Muggeridge and the Bishop of Somewhere um, <laughs> on, on that TV show about the life of Brian, yeah. where they're saying, no, no, we're, we're not parodying Christ. You know, Christ is elsewhere and this is just the story. And they mm. go, no, no, this, this is clearly a parody of the image of the crucifixion. I don't know what RTD's intention was here, but it is a recurring theme. Yes. In, in, in the new series, religion comes up far less, I think. And it doesn't come up as much in that science versus religion thing. It comes up in terms of imagery. The big example in the first season is Part of the Ways, mm-hmm. where the Daleks have now got religion. Mm-hmm. They now talk about blasphemy. And it's kind of just strange. It is, isn't it? It's almost like he's casting around for a different way to depict the Daleks. Yes. But does it land? I never felt it does, and I never really felt it was necessary. Mm. It's, it is interesting. Yeah. I don't know that it lands. Um, in the same way that one of my favourite new series stories, The Satan Pit, yeah. depicts something that could be the devil. Mm-hmm. And this is actually quite interesting because the story doesn't actually land. It could be just an alien that looks like the devil. Yep. It could be actually the devil. Mm-hmm. Or it could be an alien who looks like the devil but has influenced the, like, you know, something in between. Um, and, the, you know, we've done this for, I mean, we did mention the Pyramids of Mars, for example. Yes. Um, and there are many examples of this sort of thing um, where aliens become the malice in the yeah. Awakening, for example. Again, it is a very powerful evocation of imagery. You see a giant red horned beast mm-hmm. standing in front of the Doctor, and that is a powerful image. It is. Does it really lend, lend itself into a debate about the existence of the devil? Maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, RTD does love using religious imagery. I mean, there's that. I think there's that scene in uh, Last of the Time Lords where the Doctor is rejuvenated and he's again he's in that Christ-like pose, yes. surrounded by a halo, and and, and prayer yes. rejuvenates him. And... Yes, yes. yes. I, I'm not necessarily. I don't know that RTD is simply is thinking that all through far enough. I think he's just using it as imagery, as window dressing for the show. I, I think so, which is interesting that religion has now gone from something we need to debate mm. to something we can just use yes. for its imagery. I think for Davis and uh, when we get on to Moffat, I think they are of the opinion that science is one and religion is uh, on the on the, on the the down, downhill slope um, and uh, we're just going to use religion, as I said before, as just window dressing more than anything for a particular debate or discussion or you know informing the audience in some way. Yeah, well, I think that is probably right. I mean, and I mean, as you said, RTD is an atheist. In his mind, he has reached the conclusion that science has won. There is no yes. God. He's not open to the possibility of a God. And, and that has to inform his writing. So I think you're right there. Well, I mean, if you look at the second coming, he, he effectively has God realised that it's religion is the problem, has God commit suicide, yes. and then expects, expects the rest of humanity to come on board with this 
and then live good humanistic lives. And that's part of my annoyance with that, 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 that particular episode where it, people are meant to be going on with the rest of their lives now that God is dead and they're meant to be happy, but I'm looking at these people and they're slightly, they're slightly troubled, mm. you know, and the expectation that once religious religion is gone, that all of humanity will come together and work together is a nonsense. Yes. And there also is that concept in the second coming where if God exists, therefore the devil must. Mm. And if you, rem- and to remove the devil, you must remove God. Mm. To, re- to re- repeat your comments, Rob, again, as somebody who is, an atheist, but likes to think of himself as a flying buttress in that I support the church from the outside. Mm-hmm. And in, in some ways, it is a bizarre conclusion to reach and one that I'm still not quite sure about. Yeah. And I'm probably coming from it to as close a worldview to Davis's as most people, mm-hmm. or as, as anybody watching in terms of being an atheist as well. It's very odd. Is it disrespectful, arguably? Yeah. So then we leap into the Moffat era. There's a little leaping in this episode. Um, what can we say about Stephen Moffat and his use of religion or approach to religion in the show? Is there anything of any substance? He's certainly not afraid to mine religion for imagery and names. Similar to Russell T. Davis, he talks about these soldiers in Time of Angels, for example. They're, they're now priests. Yes. And they, you know, they don't have captains, they have bishops. And all that sort of thing, which I think you could generously say is a interesting take on what the future evolution of the church will be yes you could uh, less generously say that it's just a cheap and slightly crass way to make a bit of a splash the name of the church the church of the uh, the papal mainframe I, I think <laughs> i think he sort of sat there for about three seconds and goes that sounds good <laughs> and again you get various different imageries priests none of whom are actually of a church that we would understand or recognize but of future evolutions of a church which i think had he taken an episode to actually explore as an idea could have been really interesting Mm -hmm. he chooses not to that's fine but that's kind of where we are now we're not talking about debating science versus religion again as we said it's just let's mine this for a few images and ideas and be a little edgy at times as we've said before i think the 60s and the 70s was that 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 time of ferment where there was discussion about science and religion and now i think in the 21st century for these these um, these writers who've sort of grown up post that, the science is one, and that religion is there simply for bits and pieces to pick out to 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 insert into a story to make you know a point, but not necessarily a very deep or meaningful point. No, and in fact he he diverts away from that. If you go to his um, two part of Dark Water and uh, <laughs> Death in Heaven, worst story ever. Um, <laughs> but if you look at that one again in Dark Water, they set up this kind of interesting idea that. Maybe this is the afterlife. Mm. And they become very nasty about it. You know, that, that idea of don't cremate me because you can feel it in the afterlife. Mm. That's an idea that is kind of... Well, it's very unsettling and mm. it's probably worthy of explanation. But then in Death of Heaven, it's like, no, nah, only kidding, guys. It's all it's all just a fake and it's all just missy and, and, and let's not actually think about that anymore. Mm. But then you get, for example, Danny speaks to the Doctor from Heaven. Yeah, there is that interesting piece of imagery there, isn't there? Um, yeah. the, the the young... Is it the Iraqi boy that he accidentally killed? That yes. It's an afterthought. Yes. It's such an f- amazing and profound idea. This idea that maybe heaven exists and you can come back from it. Mm-hmm. There is... Darkwater has the seeds of a very, very interesting story, as we've just mentioned there, with you know the possibility of, in a so-called afterlife, meeting 
you know, people that, you know, as, is it a punishment to meet the Iraqi boy? Is it is it a blessing to see that he's happy and well? It's nothing. It's nothing in the story. Yeah, what, what is the relationship between the afterlife and the, and the world you leave behind? Yes. All that sort of thing. Yeah, interesting ideas that are kind of junked. Mm. Um, people who are more pro moffa than we are will we'll, we'll defend that, I'm sure, but it is kind of just used for drama then then thrown away really dismissively yeah that's but that's Moffat to a T isn't it yeah and, and even something like Kill the Moon which look I'm more generous about than a lot of people mm. it could be argued that there is a abortion rights allegory in there mm. uh, I don't think that that's the author's intention but it's certainly something that I think in the past would have been explored a bit more yeah but now it's like oh they're going to go no no they're not no, no. We'll, we'll show away from that very quickly Again, we look at the Kapoor era. Is there any anything that we can say about that other than there's pot- potential window sh- window dressing or trappings of? No, I mean we get the three part monks trilogy, yeah. which is about monks who do nothing monk like, yeah. other than having a hood, yeah. you know, other than having the the the, 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 the dressing of them. Yeah. They're, they're not shown to be of a particular faith or a particular religious or or frankly any intent. They conquer the world because hey, it's a three part and that's what the bad guys need to do. Yeah. Uh, there, there there is nothing more in that. We get the episode title, Heaven Sent, mm. that actually has nothing to do with heaven. And Hell Bent, which equally has nothing to do. No, so they're, they're nice words, but they're... They lack meaning. They, they lack meaning, yes. Um, I actually don't think there's a lot in this topic on, in, the, in the Moffat era. Mm. Is it a case that they, you know, someone like Stephen Moffat might be uncomfortable? I mean, without knowing what's in his heart and in his head. It, it, it's either that he finds it uncomfortable or that he finds it unnecessary. And possibly as well that there is... People are more careful about this topic now. Yep. I mean, I don't think anybody other than possibly Seth MacFarlane or um, Dre Parker and Matt Stone, they would be the only ones, I think, who would now sit down and write a script with the title The Day God Went Mad, yeah. thinking that maybe that's going to make it to production. <laughs> that will fly, yes. <laughs> yeah, that will fly, whereas Chris Boucher, very genuine. And, 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 you know, the production team produced it for a long time under that working title. Mm. I, it may be just the fact that Stephen Moffat is not interested in religion per se. I mean, you don't see that much in any of his writings, Press Gang or... Um, no, you're right. Or any of the, anything that's come after that coupling. It's, it, it's, he's, he's more a sort of... Uh, not an anti-religious writer. He just doesn't see any purpose in it. No, I just don't think it's an interest of his. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, we're, we're not attacking him for that. It's just not something that comes up in his writing much. No, no. And given that, let's jump ahead to Mr. Mr. Chibnall... Uh, I was just talking before, Dave. Is there anything religious of a religious bent in his writing? Look, the big one, and it's one that I called out in our uh, Doctor Who show review of um, the Battle of the Cat Walked Across My Keyboard, or whatever it's called. <laughs> yes. um, Alphabet Soup. Yeah, that one. The the, the, the season finale yeah. of, of, of Jodie Wicker's first season, where you have this society that is waiting for the return of their god. An alien creature then arrives in kind of roughly the manner and time and place that God was expected. And so they start worshipping him. Okay, that's fair enough. But he then says, now that I'm here, I want you to help me build a weapon to destroy the universe. (laughs) Now, I think that there would have been a very interesting debate there about this idea of, yes, you believe in God. He suddenly starts to tell you things that you don't believe are actually worthwhile. And maybe you need to question your belief in this God. These guys never sort of have that no. moment of spiritual crisis which I think would have elevated that story a lot more I wonder if Chibnall is actually capable given what we've seen in his other scripts of actually having that being prepared to go that extra step and having that discussion look there is no doubt and without making this a, a rehash of the, the Chibnall debate mm-hmm. we have discussed before and I've discussed before on other podcasts there is no doubt Chibnall has decided to strip away a lot of Doctor Who to make it a very 
straightforward, accessible, simplistic, not in a pejorative sense, but a simple show. Yep. Uh, you, you get to point A, to point B, to point C in a very easy-to-follow manner with a few adventures along the way, and that's all you need to do. It's, yep. it's, it's Doctor Who as in a blighter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that's a perfectly valid decision to make, whether it works for you as an individual or not. If you're doing Doctor Who as Enid Blyton, then no, there's not the place to start to <laughs> explore the meanings yes. of society and religion and politics and all of those sort of things. And, and and I think there's a good example of that in um Spiders in a Disused Hotel, where they kind of start to go down a political Trump sort of commentary, and then they pull back because we're just here to have an adventure with big spiders. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think Tribunal wants to do any of these things, politics or religion or the military or whatever mm. he just wants to tell a simple story and a simple story he does tell absolutely and yes. he has delivered on his mission statement very well all right so dave we've taken a tour the horizon of uh, doctor who and religion and faith uh is there anything that we can say to sum up um the approach to over the last 50 odd years I guess there's two points to make. One is that whilst it might feel as though we've rushed through the new series compared to the old, I do genuinely feel that's because it just doesn't talk about it in the same way. Yeah. And that leads me to the second point, which is that there is a large theme, as we've, we've drawn out here, of Doctor Who being not necessarily science versus religion, but rationalist versus faith. Yep. Knowledge and advancement versus faith uh, or, or spirituality. Uh, it's, it's oscillated between them. I think that it's very cosy and tea timey in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It's very militant and quite aggressive in the 70s. And then it sort of just puts it to bed by the time you get to the, the 21st century. Mm-hmm. If you've come to the program in the new series and you're interested in religion and how it's depicted in, in, in culture, in pop culture and television, we'd argue, I suppose, that going back to certain older stories from the classic era would help you? Yeah, I think so. I think some of the ones that we've highlighted in this podcast yeah. would be quite interesting for people who want to have that that conversation brilliant so dave thanks very much for having us here um there's always obviously a lot of food for thought for uh, new series fans who might be interested in looking at this particular topic going back and seeing particular stories from the classic era yes or indeed classic fans having another look and seeing if they agree with our views or not i haven't heard that yet i've only put the music cues in so i'm really looking forward to uh finishing this recording editing up and then dropping it on the feeds, and I'll go back and listen to it. But I'm sure it'd be fascinating. Yes, Mark. And you may even feel the need to go to church on Sunday. Anyway, let's talk about the future of the podcast, shall we? <laughs> well, the future of the podcast is basically what we've been doing for the last uh, year and a half, I think, Mark, which is... Not inter- much. <laughs> <laughs> intermittently at best. Is that correct, Mark? That's a nice way of uh, putting it. Look, we're not going to go back to a monthly schedule. I think we found that a little bit too much. We're going to be a little bit more frequent than uh, maybe the, the, the year and a half of, uh, of uh, intermission. So definitely we're doing a Christmas party episode into the year. Dave's locked in and Richard as well. Yep. Um, so that'll be a lot of fun. And the next episode we're hoping will be the, the merchandising of Doctor Who at the moment. It's not selling. Uh, why is it not in the shops? We're getting a couple of experts in uh, to talk about this from their perspectives and hopefully give us some insights into um, what is currently going on in the merchandising area. Yeah, that's hopefully we'll be recording that in a week or two and we'll get that out probably about October, November, which will then segue into our uh, Christmas show. So yes, we're going to be a little bit more um, uh, regular-ish. We're actually on Spotify now, so we need to, uh, I suppose, refresh the catalogue a bit. 
And also, of course, we're now uh, Spotify multimillionaires, Rob. So um, <laughs> we've got to make sure we keep the uh, the greatest hits coming through. Yeah, the money's been funneled through your bank account, Mark. So I'm still <laughs> waiting for my share to come through. Trust me, I'll get back to you. <laughs> still got signing authority issues or what? <laughs> No more than normal. So hopefully the next couple of months will be a bit more regular and then next year we'll, we'll, it should flow through as well. But uh, is there anything, any topics you want us to talk about? Want us to dig up some more drag from the archives or a top five or anything else, uh, any other topics? Let us know because, um, yeah, I'm sure we can we can slide them in somewhere. Absolutely. We do value the input of our listeners. Um... And the great thing is also is even though we've been off the air, I've been checking the download stats and we're still getting quite a few uh, hits on on old episodes and even episodes that I thought we'd completely forgotten about are <laughs> getting hits again. So uh, thank you to the people who have um, caught on to the podcast, even though we haven't been on for a while. It, it just speaks to the interest that you know people have in Doctor Who and the format, you know, the podcasting format. There's uh, You walk around the streets these days and everyone's got their headphones in and I doubt very much they're all listening to music. I think you know podcasts are just a growing endeavour and uh, it's great fun to uh, to do it and I've really enjoyed um, doing the podcast. And look, yeah, it, we haven't been as frequent. We, we, we spoke about why uh, when we sort of signed off uh, temporarily uh, last year. But um, look, as, as Mark said, uh, we're hoping to be a little bit more frequent not a lot, you know, I mean, we both work full time and we both got, you know, young families and uh, uh, the garden doesn't mow itself and uh, the dishes don't wash themselves. <laughs> and and uh, it's just, it's sometimes it's just hard. I mean, I, I know there are other podcasts there out there that are, you know, regular as clockwork and, and good, good on them, uh, but everyone's lives are a little bit different. So, uh, yeah, but uh, as, as you said, Mark, uh, just hoping to be a little bit more frequent. To sign off, I still haven't watched anything past Rosa. And uh, I'm happy to say that I have not yet seen The Weddings of Riversong. Key. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.